Bald Men on Campus with Jay Billis, LaFonso Ellis, and Seth Greenberg. Welcome to Bald Men on Campus. I am Seth Greenberg, joined by Jay Billis, who's taking a break from working on his golf swing. And we're joined by John Shire, who at one time was a scratch golfer, but now he's become head coach at Duke, who's taking a penis. I don't know why. But John, uh, you have a, a new child and a new job. How's that going? It's going great. It's uh, We figured, get it all out at once, do everything at the same time. We actually moved in the past couple of months as well. So my wife is trooper. She's the superstar and uh, very thankful for this opportunity and the fact that we're all situated and ready to go for this year now. Are you a diaper changing dad or were you like me? Are you like me that avoids it at all costs? Unfortunately, you know, I feel like my uh, the amount of diapers that I've changed from the first child to the third has gone down some through, through the years. Uh, well, for, I don't know if that's fortunately for me or unfortunately, but uh, I've done less and less, but still try to just find that time where you're still bonding and uh, enjoying that time with my son. So he's uh, still only six weeks old, but he's growing, he's healthy and, uh, you know, excited for him to get to that age where we can hang out and play a little bit more. Were you uh, uh, in the delivery room, dad? Like I kind of yearned for the Ricky Ricardo, you know, Lucille Ball days where the dad was in the waiting room because I didn't handle that very well. Phyllis, you're such a wimp. I was a huge wimp. Oh, I wanted no part of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm finding a lot out about Jay right now. Exactly. Where, where's that toughness bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's in the waiting room. <laughs> Yeah, I was more uh, at the head kind of guy. I was just yes. more, I was there for moral support. And uh, my wife, I didn't need to be writing that action, but I was there just in, I was in the room though. So better than you, I guess, in that respect. But I was in the room. Well, there were, bir- there yeah. were birthing rooms when you, when, when you had your kids. I mean, uh, two of my three, three kids were in birthing rooms. Paige was the only one that we were in actually an emergency room, right? You guys had, had a whole suite, I'm sure. No, I was in the I was in the the delivery room, but before our first child, I got a call from Leo Routens, who was a teammate of mine uh, when I played pro ball in Italy. And when I answered the phone, the first thing he said was, "Here's what you have to do: you have to be up by the head, shoulder to shoulder, like you're coming off a screen. Back to the action. You don't need to be seeing <laughs> any of that." And I did exactly what he said. Smart, smart. <laughs> Are you an early riser, John? I am. I am an early riser. Yeah. So what do you do? What's your routine when you get up? You know, for me, I found, uh, you know, Seth, you, you made that comment about tennis, but I think you find the, the importance to take care of yourself better. And, you know, I haven't done the best job of that necessarily in the first few months because you're, there's so much you're trying to get organized and get set up with. Uh, but I try to do something every day, you know, just for my body, my mind, uh, whether it be, you know, going for a walk, uh, you know, being a bad tennis player two days a week or, uh, you know, getting a run in, uh, lifting, just doing something in the morning really helps me. Uh, and then obviously, you know, there's, there's more that you have to do to organize and you're not coming to a meeting anymore, just relying on coach K to dictate what's going to happen for the day, the week, the month. And so for me, I think the best, I feel either late at night or in the mornings, uh, which doesn't lead to necessarily the most sleep, but I think that's, uh, just where I find comfort in getting up and getting organized for that week or that day. So who do you play tennis with? I play tennis with Coach Je- uh, Emil Jefferson, and he's about the same level as me, 
but then I found out the last couple of days that Jay Lucas on our staff and then Mike Schrage, they really played tennis. So we got out there and played doubles yesterday. And uh, I'm not going to say the score, but we did lose. And so we've, we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> what, uh, who, what are the line calls? Are they deferential to head coach John Shire or are they saying that ball was out and, and, and I was, jerking you around? I was, you know, Emil and I, when we've played, we kind of give each other the benefit of the doubt. Like if it's close, you play it. And then and we got out of there with those guys and they didn't give us one call. It was, <laughs> I think a couple of them were actually on the line and they said they were out. So they, they did not at all defer in any way whatsoever. There goes those camp bonuses. <laughs> <laughs> they did it the week after camp ended. That was already done. So that's, yeah. <laughs> now, what sports, John, did you play growing up? Yeah, I kind of played everything. I mean, when I was really young, you know, I just tried to play, you know, soccer, baseball, basketball, uh, football, as, as it got – to tackle football, I stopped playing and, you know, just more of a basketball and baseball kind of guy. But uh, uh, once I got to high school, it became just basketball. It uh, was hard to do more. But I loved I loved playing every sport, really, that, that you could possibly play growing up. I got two questions, real simple. The first time you met your team as the head coach, the first time you met your staff as the head coach, and you guys could have everyone come over to your house after a game and stay up till three o'clock in the morning and be as miserable as you. <laughs> Haven't decided that yet. Um, well, let me, the first thing, uh, meeting with the team was earlier this week and it was pretty surreal to be honest with you. And even though I've known, you know, for over a year now, you know, I'm going to be the head coach and uh, we've recruited this team and uh, excited about all of it until you get up there in front of your team for the first time and you're standing up there Everybody's looking to you. What are you going to say? What's the message? Uh, There's a special feeling, one that I don't think that I'll ever forget. Uh, And then really meeting our staff before then, you know, it took some time to get our staff together because uh, there's some changes, some turnover. Uh, But we really have, I just think, a unique collection of different perspective, uh, you know, in in a Mike Schrage and a Jay Lucas coming from outside, just the Duke umbrella or Duke family and obviously having Chris Carrowell and Emil Jefferson. So I'm just so proud of the group that we've put together and it's been great so far. I mean, I, I couldn't be more proud or excited uh, about the team, but also the staff and, you know, the, the first meeting to get that one under your belt. Uh, today's the first workout. So I'm looking forward to that. It's starting to, you know, hopefully build in the right direction here as well. Do you still do uh, like a program orientation? I mean, it's so different even from when you played when you had so many returning guys. Uh, And I know you guys started this years ago where you'd have an orientation to sort of take uh, the team, not just the new guys, but everybody through what the program is about, what the school is about. Do you still do that? Yeah, I think it's, you know, more important than ever to do that because, uh, you know, I found with with change can – you can very quickly lose what has made you great or, you know, understanding the history very quickly if you're not just uh, proactive about it. And so we've tried, uh, we've put into uh, action our Brotherhood CEO program, which once a week, you know, we're, well, first of all, we're doing, you know, teaching our guys about financial literacy and we're doing branding and we're talking NIL and a bunch of different things. But 
you know, just as important, we're talking about the history of our program. I think it's really important that we all understand how we got to where we are today and to learn from it, to understand it, to appreciate it. And then obviously that allows you to move forward with respecting, you know, really where all of us have come from. How would you brand Billis? I mean, like, you know, I mean, if Billis was back in the day, would, would he be branded because he had that great head of hair uh, or <laughs> like he was the Southern California, you know, kind of cool dude. I mean, how would have you guys branded Billis in the NIL era? Because I think Allery would have made all the money and, and Dawkins was the best player. Well, you said cool, and that's not one of the words we would use to describe Billis, you know, back in the day. So that's, that's, that's your first mistake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's uh, – no, he, he could play, though. And, you know, it's, it's getting to the point where, you know, none of our guys really remember me as a player. So they damn sure don't remember Jay. And that's, that's the thing. <laughs> that's just it's, – it's the way it is. And so, uh, you know, we have to bring out some old tapes and uh, – remind them from time to time, but uh, I don't, how would we brand you? I'm, I'm running out of ideas. Up here. I want to shake the narrative on Billis back in the day. Come on now, Billis, help us out here. I mean, I would have dominated the NIL space uh, when I was in college. Not only the hair and the extraordinary good looks, could you imagine the security that they would have had to hire for me to get me in and out of buildings with all the Beatle-like screaming fans? Um, you know, it had nothing to do with whether I could play or not, which I couldn't. It would have just been based upon my sparkling personality, that spectacular hair and uh, and the stunning good looks. I, I would hope that uh, NIL would have given him some more confidence. You know, I know. He's exactly. <laughs> the jealousy it would have spurred, though, you know, because Allery and I used to get mistaken for one another from time to time. And whenever somebody would call me Mark Allery in public, I would treat them like crap. So that they would leave going, God, that Mark Allery is a jerk. And they tell all their friends that Mark Allery is a jerk. ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, presents the VC show with eight-time NBA All-Star Vince Carter and co-host Roz Gold Awunde, who talk all things basketball with some of the biggest names in sports and entertainment. They will give their unfiltered thoughts on the NBA, and Vince will share stories from his illustrious 22-year career. That's the VC Show. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you were growing up in Illinois, uh, like what teams were you a fan of? Was Duke on your radar when you were, uh, you know, entering high school? You know, it's, it's actually a funny story. I don't know if I've really said this to many people but when I was young I mean when I first got introduced to college basketball Duke it was it was, it was Duke for me and what happened was is you get into you know junior high or you start growing older everybody was a fan of Duke or where I'm from Illinois and so I just I had to be different and so for me uh, I became a huge Seton Hall fan actually when Tommy Amaker was the head coach you know they had the teams of you know um uh, Andre Barrett and Eddie Griffin and, you know, Samuel Dallenberg, they had, they had some big time teams. They actually, I think uh, they played Illinois one time. They, they went into overtime. I think they lost, but uh, you know, they were, they were legit. So in junior high, I had CN Hall gear, like you wouldn't believe. And, uh, and then when coach K called me for the first time, I'd be right back to Duke. <laughs> it transitioned very quickly right back to Duke. You would have been big in South Orange. 
<laughs> what do your parents do? Because I, I remember them coming. To, it seemed like they came to every one of your games. Uh, they were they seemed so supportive and always always sort of behind you, uh, cheering. What, what did they do, and and how influential were they? Yeah, they they've been everything for me. Just the, the epitome of supportive parents that are passionate about my development and you know playing hard, but never would get into the weeds of coaching or trying to tell me how to play. Uh, my dad taught me the game when I was young. He was a baseball and basketball player, not collegially, but when he was young, had a great understanding for the game. And so I learned to not just think about the game through the lens of scoring, but through uh, hustle plays and deflections and steals and, you know, rebounding. And, uh, you know, my dad for a long time is uh, worked in a picture frame business. Uh, and so he was able to travel and he actually missed one of my games uh, when we played at Florida State and I had one of the best games, you know, ever. And so I threatened that he couldn't come and see me again. And I think the next game he didn't come and I played horrible. So he was relieved in a way where he could come back. Uh, but now my dad actually works for a company, uh, so Ulo, uh, but it, it takes the sulfites out of wine. And so they've, uh, they've had a great thing going for the last few years and he's able to travel and I'm sure they'll be there for plenty, plenty of games. Uh, now that I'm, the head coach here. You got to ask you this. How many years were you with Coach K? As a player and a coach or just? Yeah, player and a coach. 13 years. Hey, Jay, Jay what, 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 would, what would Coach K say to John right now? He would say, yo, yo, <laughs> yo. He always says, yo. Well, <laughs> one thing I know, one thing I know, John, you can answer is, um, I, you know, I get asked, we all do, about – Tell us a story about Coach K in the locker room, like, you know, some of the stuff that was a little bit, you know, uh, off topic, like when uh, my freshman year, when he comes into a completely pitch dark locker room with a candle in front of his face. Or I remember a former player telling me he came in in boxing gloves and a robe before a game one time. And then uh, I think Mark Williams told me uh, at practice maybe a year ago or something, they come out and there's nothing, nothing in the gym but a big rope and they had to play tug of war. And uh, yeah. when you were playing, uh, what, what kind of stuff like that did he do that you remember? The best one for me probably was uh, the second time he came, you know, he comes in twice to talk to us. The second time, lights go off. No assistant coach comes up in the front of the room to go through lineups. It just uh, – uh, the, the fight scene in Braveheart comes on, you know, where Mel Gibson's yelling and they all start charging – and as soon as that scene's over, it cuts off. Coach K comes running in with a sword <laughs> and <laughs> yelling. And he stabs it into there's like a small flower pot right there. And he stabs it. And the only thing, let's go. Let's go. And, you know, all of us got up, started yelling. And we ran out. And, and then uh, I know we won that game. I know that much. <laughs> But his face wasn't – it wasn't painted blue and white. It was like, not no, painted. Was. Okay, if he's not going to go all out, that's disappointing. Exactly, exactly. He half it. When he does that, I always I, – I'm always fat. Like, part of you guys are let's go, and part of you guys have to get out there and go, holy <laughs> what, is he, what, what was he thinking? I mean, like, like, like what's, the, what's the reaction after, like, the shock of, like, the whole thing? Well, you never uh, – you, you learn pretty quickly 
the intensity that you have as a player may not uh, – it may match coaches at times, but it's definitely not going to surpass it, right? And so that was one of those examples uh, where, all right, this is serious. Like, we, we have to win this game. And uh, there's a little bit like, this guy's a little – I don't know about this guy, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it makes you want to run through a wall for him. It, you know, like he's, he's – uh, I, I think for me as I've looked at this next chapter – seeing coach up close for 13, maybe 14 years. I don't even know now, but uh, how he's always been authentic to himself. And end of the day, I think people respect when you're being authentic, you are, you are who you are. And that's, I'm not saying I'm going to run in and uh, do that, you know, with a sword or anything like that. I'll, I'll do what's authentic to me. What's your coaching, what's your coaching style going to be? I mean, like, like, you know, like I, I always start like the first time a guy comes a head coach, you're going to sit, you're going to stand, or you're going to, you know, I mean, like, how, how do you find your comfortable place? Because there is a huge, huge difference in terms of how you approach the, the prism you look at the game through. Right. And like, right. is that something you, you, have you like thought through that? Or, you know, I'm, because it is, it, it, it is a huge adjustment in terms of just your presence. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's it's interesting you mentioned that, Seth, because the first game that I coached in place for Coach K was the COVID year playing Boston College at home. And I think I was thinking about it too much in the first half. You know, you're trying to be uh, not trying to stand out or you're trying to be whatever it may be. Uh, and by the second half, I just end up kicking in the gear and following my instincts. And uh, we end up winning that game. And then this past year, you know, coach the Wake Forest game and uh, coach the second half of the Wake Forest game, uh, which uh, and in those games, I found myself standing, you know, just it wasn't something that was planned or that was yeah. calculated. It just was following my instincts. So uh, I, I, would think, I would think I would be up more, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to uh, get ahead of myself and say it's going to be that way or this way. Uh, I think as far as the communication with our players goes, they need more than ever. I mean, you know, like when when I played, certainly when you played Jay for Coach K, you know, he didn't need to explain why we were doing a drill or why, why we're doing something. We were just going to do it. And that doesn't mean our guys don't believe or aren't, but they need to understand at a deeper level uh, why we're, you know, running this action or why we're, you know, doing this drill and so the communica communication, I think you need to have open, honest, direct. Uh, you know, I've heard Sean McBay say it. I think it's a great way, but, you know, demanding without being demeaning, you know, and that's something for us, you know, really being really challenging our guys. That's why they're here. That's why they chose to come to Duke. But 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 with, but with just being honest and open and, and direct. John, you were a, a, a great player, uh, at, both in high school and in college. You scored over 2,000 points. You were all everything, won a national championship in 2010. When you left Duke, uh, you know, I thought you're, you're an NBA player for a long time, but you had a, a bizarre kind of injury situation. What, what, what happened, and then how did you move from that? Well, I felt like uh, I was in the perfect situation, honestly, I was with the Miami Heat. That's when the week we were going to summer league is when LeBron signed uh, and Chris Bosh signed and then D-Wade re-signed. And I felt, you know, they needed shooting. 
and they need minimum contract guys. And I felt like <laughs> by both for them. And, uh, and it actually got to one point in training camp. I remember I was, I was shooting the ball so well that uh, Coach Spolstra, he was there running the workouts. Uh, and he said, if I, if to the whole camp, if I got one more three, everybody else was running. And uh, the second game was summer league. Uh, the first game, I hit the game winning shot, played well. Uh, and then the second game, I was uh, uh, very beginning of the game, just got poked in the eye. And immediately it was, a, it was a strange feeling. You just felt in shock through my whole body. And one of the things I was most proud of is I never missed a game at Duke. I never missed a practice. Same thing with my high school career. And uh, the second game, Summer League, I, I couldn't get up. It was just a feeling of shock to my whole body. And I went back to the training room, and they asked me to open my eye. And at that, at that moment, I couldn't see anything. And uh, there was a feeling I'll never forget. And then shortly after, uh, I went to the hospital. They had to do a couple surgeries, or a laser surgery, I should say. And uh, they had to stitch me up. And I regained partial vision, but that definitely uh, sped up the, the process with uh, going into coaching. You know, I'm proud of the professional career I had still. I went to training camp with the Clippers shortly after, played for the Houston Rocket, Rockets G League aff affiliate, played for Chris Finch, who's now the head coach of Minnesota, and then played in Israel and Spain. And so that perspective, just seeing the game in Europe, internationally, G League, uh, you know, even going with the Clippers really helped me to be more well-rounded uh, by the time I came back to do. I, I, I remember actually my brother calling me. He was coaching the team in Israel about yeah. that time uh, when you were when you were trying to come back and, and play and, and be healthy. Uh, so it's, I think it worked out pretty well for you. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, yeah, it, it has. It has. No, I, I don't. I don't know that I believe in everything happens for a reason, but I believe that did. And, you know, the fact of starting coaching at a really young age, uh, even though I may be younger than most head coaches, the experience that I've gone has been uh, has been incredible for me. Do you, do you still have any lingering issues from the, the eye issue? You know, it's my I'm legally blind in my right eye and, you know, some some stuff, but it's there's nothing that I can't do. So I'm really fortunate. I mean, I don't notice it on a day to day basis and. The only time I notice it is when I go in for eye checkups and things like that. But I'm, uh, I'm, I'm as good as could be. What, what do you do, John? For what do you do for fun? What, what do you and your wife do when you want to get away from things? We haven't gotten away yet. We got to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> you better do that pretty quick, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We we have to figure that out. In August, we're planning to uh, get back to Chicago and uh, for a week and spend some time with family. But uh, for us, just with the, the craziness of having three little ones and uh, and uh, uh, and then obviously the job, we're trying to find that uh, that balance. Not like it's going to be not like you're going to have less time necessarily here. But when you are home, how do you be present? And for me, it's spending time with my kids. You know, I've, I have a blast with them. You know, I pride myself on being you know a great dad first before a great coach. And uh, my wife and I, we're, we're trying to find that time to, to get together. So we'll uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> what, how old are the kids? Uh, four, almost three, and then six weeks. So you're two years away probably from like youth little sports. 
where your wife is going to be going in 1700 directions at once. Do you understand that? Uh, uh, she doesn't yet, but I think <laughs> I, I did it myself. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're almost there. How did you guys That's meet? Good. We met in Chicago uh, and our, our, our sisters were friends. And so they had been telling us, you know, we should meet one another. And we met at an ugly sweater Christmas party back in, you know, 2010. Yeah. And uh, so we've dated basically ever since outside of one year, a little, little split, and we got right back together. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, that's how we met in Chicago. How ugly was the sweater? Uh, very ugly for me. For her, she looked beautiful. Yeah, you're not going to catch No, I meant your sweater. I your sweater. I no, mine was ugly. Was, you were just a project she wanted to work with. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, mine was ugly. Yeah. So how, how was the proposal? What'd you do? I actually went all out for the proposal. And I, I had, uh, I had, uh, we were in Chicago and I had uh, a stretched limo. I rented for the day and I had two of her best friends come in town. I had two of my best friends come in town and I had her uh, basically like a scavenger hunt and had her stop at these different places along the way. And then I was there the last place. It's like the first date we went on, you know, took her there and one of her friends was waiting. Then the first time, you know, we went out with a group of friends and, you know, one of her other friends was waiting there and down the line. And then I was there at the last spot uh at the zoo and i forget there's some significant we we went to the zoo one time i think and i proposed there and so uh went pretty all out and i don't know that i'm a romantic but uh that day i i did well yeah exactly how was it asking <laughs> her dad that's what i want to know oh he was great yeah he cried when i asked him he was all in yeah we uh he was he's a you know tough guy when you talk to him but he's really a softy and emotional and uh, he was he was easy. Yeah, he was easy. I, I can't imagine Billis when when someone come rolls in to, to ask sorry for a hand. I, I, I'd like that on videotape. That'll probably make Instagram if I know Billis. Hey, as long as as long as there's a ceremony to cut my credit card and he takes over, I'm good with that. <laughs> That's gonna be a shindig, Billis. You better start to say about that because I'm gonna give you you a little bit of advice. You have no say whatsoever in what Wendy's going to spend on that wedding. I can tell you that. I've had 30 years of no say with regard to that, so I'm used to that. Hey, hey John, so today is your first practice. What's like, what do you, what are you trying to get accomplished in the, you know, like it's a long season now. What are you going to try to get accomplished in the summer? First and foremost, just to get a feel for each other, you know, because there's so, there's so much new Jeremy, is really the only player that played for us, you know, down the stretch. Jalen Blakes is the other player that was on our team, but it's just so different. And so uh, really getting a feel for how to play, not necessarily putting in plays or anything like that, but just how we're going to play offensively in the summer. And then really think for 18-year-olds, their first time going through it, you don't know everything that you can do yet. And so a term that we've used is just expanding your limit. And so this summer, if we can get them to understand, you know, uh, you think you're tired, but you're not. You got an extra gear you can go into. Just the speed of the game, how you have to play, the physicality. If we can get them to expand their limits this summer 
improve individually and then get a feel for each other, how to, you know, play with one another. Uh, that's, that'll be a productive summer and set us up well uh, for the preseason in the fall. You know, you're not that far removed from your own playing career, but, but do you see a difference in maturity level or, or skill level, things like that, in the players you've recruited and the guys that, that you came in with as freshmen or your, your class, not just the guys at Duke, but, but your high school class? I honestly think, Jay, that it's night and day. Uh, you know, it's, I don't know that it's really recognizable. Uh, you know, we were good, but the skill level continues to go up. You know, I mean, we have, you know, just watching our big guys, you know, yesterday in a workout and the way they shoot and they can handle like it's just different. And uh, and then probably the, the biggest thing that's different is, is you both know really well is the expectation for immediate success, which doesn't always happen and probably happens more than it used to. It definitely happens more than it used to. Uh, but there's still setbacks, adversity that you hit. Uh, but it's to me, that's the biggest difference with you have to set expectations the right way and really make sure we all understand we are going to go through adversity. We are going to hit bumps in the road individually, collectively. Uh, and then how do we handle that once we do? Yeah, that's really well put because it looks easier on TV. <laughs> and I say it all the time at every level. I mean, like, you know, like you're watching the NBA draft and you know, one kid from, uh, I think, uh, G League night, he got drafted in the second round and he looked like he was crushed. He got drafted to the NBA. And right. then yet, you know, he's 18 years old and he's going to be an NBA player, you know, and, you know, just the beginning stages of his career. And yet he was disappointed. How, how do you how do you communicate to them that journey, the process? I mean, like, you know, obviously defining playing hard is the first thing. Uh, being a good teammate probably goes alongside it. But how how do you define to those guys what the journey is going to be like and, and to enjoy it? I mean, how, how, how do you get that across to a, gr a really group of talent? And you put a lot of that on Jeremy, who, who's gone through it for two years. Right. I think the first thing is – the more real world examples you can give, the better, instead of just saying we need to do this or do that. And, you know, talking about adversity, you know, I actually talked to our team about this this week. You know, you, you think about the Warriors and the way they won the last game where they just ran away with the champ, you know, with the championship and and all that. But you forget, you know, they're down two games to one. And the Celtics are winning 94-90 with five minutes left in the game. Like it, it, it very easily you know, in that moment, that's where really the series was changed in that moment, those last five minutes. And so same thing with our final four run this past year. You know, we're losing to Michigan State by five, you know, with a few minutes left to go in the game. You know, we could have easily lost that game. Texas Tech comes out and they're kicking our ass the first few minutes and we're down and we can't even get a shot off. And we had a that timeout, Coach K called and we had a huddle. That was – really a defining moment for us. So we're going to be put in positions that you don't think you're going to be in or don't want to be in. Uh, but I think sharing those specific situations uh, helps our players because they've, they haven't been through it before. They just haven't, which is okay. I haven't been through it as a head coach, but just understanding that's going to happen. And the more we can practice it, the more we can try to simulate it, uh, coach it, teach it, to me, that's what separated Coach K for a long time. I mean, X and O's is one thing, uh, but it's the 
the motivational, the situations that you're going to be in from a strategy standpoint, mentally, uh, we need to separate ourselves that way. Do you remember uh, a moment like that of adversity when, um, when you were a player that, uh, that kind of shook you and you had to overcome? Where do I begin? There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of examples that I could give. Uh, there was, I mean, shoot, the, uh, my f- first ACC game at home playing Virginia Tech. You know, we lose. And, you know, we lose in overtime. And, like, that's, that rocks you. You know, so how do you bounce back from that? And, you know, then you, you flash forward and, you know, you're playing, you know, in the tournament. You know, I lost my first three years. We kind of got crushed, you know, against West, you know, against uh, VCU my first year, West Virginia in the second round my second year, Villanova in the Sweet 16 my third year. Uh, but then the, the championship run, we're losing to Baylor, who, was, who had a great team that year, uh, by four with four minutes to go. And then, you know, we're beating Butler in the national championship by five, and they score back-to-back possessions. We miss back-to-back possessions. And it's a one-point game all of a sudden. Under a minute to go, you feel like the whole world is on rooting for Butler. Uh, you feel like it or they were, it's or both. And, uh, you know, call a timeout in that huddle right there. It's probably the most important huddle I've ever been in, you know, uh, from players' perspective and, frankly, a coaching perspective as well. Uh, so, yeah, we – I could go on and on about the adversity or the challenges that we faced when I was a player and the, uh, the bounce backs that we had to have. Well, well speaking of that Butler game, uh, at the end of the game, when Brian Zubek was at the free throw line, uh, take us through how, you know, he was told to miss that, miss that shot on purpose. Well, it was, it was chaos in that moment, you know, we're uh, up by one and, Obviously, you want to make the make the first. And he makes the makes the first, and uh, you know the crowd is cheering. You're, you know, I think the ref gave the ball back to him pretty quickly as well. And coach just told him to miss. And you could hear on the sidelines that you know Wojo and Collins were up as well. And it's, it looked like they were saying to make it. And so I'm trying to tell Zubek, you know, look over there. And after some discussion with Coach Wojo Collins. Uh, he told him to miss again. And so Brian didn't really know what to do. And then I think last second they were calling again and I was trying to get Zub's attention and couldn't. Uh, and then he ended up missing it. And, you know, they, they did a great job of advancing the ball up the floor very quickly. I mean, it's, that's hard to cover that much ground. And cause we, you know, Zubek jumped up, stepped up to Hayward. Uh, there's, I think an illegal screen in there, but that's neither here nor there with Howard, you know, and Singler. Uh, but that's really, uh, you know, in retrospect, you make decisions and it, it worked out in a great way. And he missed a shot, made a hell of an effort. But, uh, you know, I'm thankful it worked out that way. What was that feeling like when the buzzer went off? Complete joy. You know, I mean, when you go through four years and the ups and downs and, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the the failures and, uh, the hard work. And for us, we had a core group that had been through it for three years. And so that doesn't happen as much. And so we just had a really close knit group and we just didn't care how we did it. Uh, Butler was a heck of a team. I don't know if they get quite the respect that they should with how good they were. I mean, they had pros on that team. They I think they had won 24, 25 games in a row. Uh, and uh, they were a heck of a team. So just complete joy. 
<laughs> which is why there's now a picture of me celebrating with the Blue Devil. And it's me, one of my teammates, and then there's the Blue Devil with us, which is, you know, I don't remember that. I don't know why, but uh, I was just hugging anybody that I could. <laughs> that was your version of, uh, of Jimmy V, looking for someone to hug. You had, he exactly. got stuck with the Blue Devil. He got stuck with, you know, Derek Wittenberg. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, last question for me. I, you're talking about adversity and all that and what you went through. Besides Coach K, is there someone that you feel you are going to be able to go to to kind of help navigate? Because it is a navigation of, like, you know, coaches have to deal with adversity no different than players, except they've also got to turn around and present themselves to their team in a, in a manner that shows confidence and, and, and trust and, and belief that we're going to get through this. You know, are you going to have a, a, a person, obviously you have Coach K right above you, but do you, have, do you have a person that you can step away and just kind of help you navigate this journey? Yeah, I think that's really important. And, you know, look, my, my family is, you know, going to be there, you know, every step of the way. But when you, ha this is, and I love them to death, but, you know, family, they can be emotional. They can be, you know, so it's important yeah. that you have, there's, there's two people that I'm close with outside of Duke or family where you can just bounce ideas off of. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've worked with those people to, you know, uh, 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 be ready to become a head coach when the time came, didn't know or be a Duke necessarily or in this moment. Uh, but I think it's important to have, you know, people that are a couple people that are close to you have your best interest but are not emotional in times when we can become emotional yeah. and so absolutely I, I value that a lot well my last question when did you know Bancaro was going number one <laughs> so I was at the draft yeah I saw you there I'm getting text about him going number one before I even knew and so I actually uh went over to him and I wasn't going to ask him two minutes before but in retrospect, I realized that he found out just a few minutes before as well. So I don't feel like I was left out. And uh, but I was when I saw that, man, I was so happy for him. I mean, that's that's a special thing. But I didn't know until the very end. When did you find Jay, out? When did you know? Yeah, I was going to say, when did you know? Come on. Come on. You were right on site. When Adrian Wojnarowski told me, uh, probably 30 minutes before the draft, he, he called me over and said, be prepared for Bancaro to go number one. And, you know, you guys know this. Woj literally knows everything. I mean, I've never met anybody who's more plugged into what's going on. And up until that moment, you know, he had been told that it was going to be uh, Smith, Holmgren, Bancaro in that order. And that had been reported uh, by him and others multiple times. So, even uh, yeah. yeah, even that morning. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, nobody lies to Woj. I mean, um, so I, I, I still haven't sort of deconstructed exactly, you know, how that happened. Did they know, did Orlando know all along and just sort of smoke screened it? I, I have no idea, nor do I care, but, but it was pretty exciting, honestly, to, to have that kind of thing happen. Uh, it made it more, more interesting because, you know, when you, when you have it slotted somehow, uh, you know, there's no letdown in the draft. It's all really cool. But but that that made it a lot more more fun and intriguing. Well, you also then you when that happens, so Paulo goes one, then it's like all right, who goes two now? 
Yeah. You know, that's and when's the last draft you've been a part of where something like that has happened or you don't know that early in the draft, two, three, four, five, what's going to happen from there? The only one I can remember, John, this is my 20th draft sitting on the desk for ESPN. And the only one I can remember like that was when Anthony Bennett from UNLV got drafted number one. And we were all like, what? Nobody, nobody knew it. Nobody thought that was going to happen. And it was kind of a grenade thrown in the middle of the draft. And now everybody had to scramble and try to figure out what was going to happen next. And, um, you know, you don't need to figure out where it's going to happen in five minutes. We're going to know, but, but it, it was really fun and it made it kind of more exciting. And, you know, the draft has become a show now it's serious business, obviously for the teams, but I told you his last question, but, but I'll ask this one too. What I said it during the draft and I'm not sure I said it artfully, but you know, the, the NBA teams are not, it shouldn't be their concern. What message gets sent. Um, they're, they're drafting for their purposes, but messages get sent anyway. And there were a few, there were maybe a couple players drafted in the first round. Peyton Watson of UCLA was the one that sticks out. I mean, he, he, there's never been a player that averaged so few points drafted in the first round. He averaged three points a game, got drafted in the first round. W- what kind of message do you think young players take from that? That, hey, it, it, you know, almost it doesn't matter what I do. It just matters you know, what I am. Do you think that that will resonate and have effect? Yeah, I think there's, uh, you naturally can see some guys like a Peyton Watson where you're drafted off potential, not necessarily what you've done. Although I think in the last couple of years, if you look, there's more guys that are drafted that are ready to impact winning right away. There's value in that. The best example for us is Wendell Moore, you know, going 26. You know, people were, were raving about Wendell. Like, he, we felt very strongly like we were going to be shocked if he ended up out of the first round going into draft day. And, you know, just on his maturity level and the fact, shoot, he's still young. I mean, he's only still 20 and he has three years experience of college. But you look at a Jake Laravia, you look at a, a David Roddy, you look at you know, the lottery, you have several guys who came back, you know, uh, Matherin, Murray, uh, Ivy. uh, I know I'm missing one. I mean, I know there's more in there, but I think there's value in that as well. So, you know, there's the, there's some freaky guys who are, you know, have great potential that are always, you're going to take a chance on. Uh, But you can still, if you're not that, the ability to impact winning right away. uh, I think NBA teams are appreciating that more and more. It's 100%. You look at Jalen Brunson, you look at the Joe Harris's, you look at, I mean, there's, there's a zillion guys. Wendell's obviously, you know, right in that category. The guys that actually understand and will embrace or know who they are and, and how they win and will, are ready to embrace a role uh, can be slotted, as we know. The NBA is a league of role players. Yeah. I should have mentioned the two, the two guys from Kansas, Sabaji and, and Christian Brown, yeah. national champions. Yeah. They're tough. They've been through it. They've been well coached and the first round picks, you know, yeah. so there's there's, a, there's a, uh, to me more examples of that. You know, you look at each draft the last couple of years, there's been several guys in the first round, you know, less concerned about age or less concerned about, you know, upside. Like he's he's ready right now. And so I think that's a message that if I'm a young player, I'm taking note of and, uh, you know, continue to value and learn how to play. And the last thing I would say, Jay, because we had 
five guys get drafted, which is pretty incredible, by the way, for Coach K's last team and the group that we had. Uh, but the how important Intel is or just when I say Intel, uh, like understanding the game, uh, like I said, valuing, impacting winning, impacting someone's culture. We were asked so much about that this past spring. And, uh, you know, as you get into any pick in the draft, I don't care what it is. Uh, it's, it's a slim margin, you know, like it's, you know, Trevor goes 42. I think there's a world he could have gone 25, 26 still, you know, it's just, it's that slim. And he's again, ended up in a good spot and going to have a great opportunity. But for all of our guys, uh, I think they showed that being in our environment, but that's something definitely that is, uh, asked, uh, a lot more now to me, at least, uh, than, than before. Good point. Well, I appreciate, we appreciate you doing this, especially in your first day of real practice or our practice, which has got to be exciting. Uh, yeah. I think you should start practice probably by giving, and you know, you're talking about history and tradition, and uh, you probably should start practice by just what an absolutely emotional morning it's been having a chance to visit with Jay Billis. <laughs> hey, man. Bald men on campus. Uh, what greater honor could a coach have? I mean, exactly. that's a bucket list thing. We should compare our first practice today with the pr first practice you ever had, Jay, at Duke. I'm sure they're very similar practice plans that we're going to have. Yeah, my therapist says I don't have to talk about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I know one thing. There won't be as many as colorful language in this first practice than was your first practice, Billis. Well, the, the, the crappy thing about it was whenever I screwed up, which was a lot, we had another Jay on the team, Jay Bryan. So when Coach K would single, you know, single players out, he would do it with their last names. But for me and Jay, he used our full names. And so that was not pleasant it, to hear your full name and then the wrath of what came after uh that that left a lot of scars hey you know what hey john and i'm the one who has to deal with those scars now <laughs> yeah because you're 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 the, the you're the finished product under under glass that needs no work you have no scars for your, your basketball life from coach Le, yeah from coach lababble who i thought my name was a little son of a <laughs> well you've matured now you're a big son of a <laughs> well, John, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank Appreciate you, you guys. It's been great. All right. Have a great Have Sunday. a good one today. Right. See you guys. Good luck in the tennis matches. Those are more important. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs>